Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. Hello, and I'm Franz Buscher. And today we are not planning to be joined by any guest. Uh, if we are joined by a guest, it will be a rogue visit from one of our kids uh, as we are recording from our uh, respective houses. Obviously, the current crisis brought about by the, the global coronavirus pandemic has caused massive disruption to all our lives uh, and work. But a few weeks in now, um, we're in a position to record Policy Matters again. Uh, from home rather than a, a studio and using the magic of modern technology this should all operate relatively uh, smoothly. Obviously there's only one topic dominating any policy discussions at the moment and that's uh, that's the coronavirus or the COVID-19 uh, pandemic so uh, we're going to spend some time today thinking about the impacts of that across um, a number of different uh, domains but first of all I mean this is a strange new world for all of us at the moment. Um, so before we talk about anything to do with policy and policy areas, um, Franz, just tell me, you know, how are you adjusting to the current situation? You've got two young children, um, you and your wife are both full-time professionals, but the schools and nurseries are closed. How are you uh, juggling life and it, work and everything? You know, it's, it's a strange twilight zone almost. On the one hand, actually, it's really nice being at home with the kids, um, and spending time with kids playing with them and, and doing that day in, day out. That's, that's quite nice. At the same time, it's kind of my worst nightmare having the kids on top of me. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's a very strange time. Uh, unlike a lot of other people, my wife and I, we didn't lose our jobs. We were able to move our work online. On the other hand, our employers both expect us to work online and deliver the work that, that we get paid for. Uh, and that's very challenging without childcare. I really did not realize how difficult it would be uh, without nurseries, without schools, how much attention, well, I mean, of course, I know how much attention the kids need, yeah. but how difficult it is to juggle work with children at home. So that's, that's a real challenge, I must say, and I, I have no solution to that. Um, like with many other people in the situation, it can be very stressful. No, uh, we have arguments at home about time, you know, who gets to work. Uh, the, for example, doing this show is a little bit more stressful than usual because my wife has to take care of the kids. She is not able to work whilst we're doing this. So it's a rather strange situation. How about you? Yeah, I mean, the same kind of uh, same pressures and, and stresses, I suppose, but um, also the same benefits, like you say. It's good. it's good to be able to be at home with the kids, spend more time with them. Um, fortunately, so my wife has been at home uh, looking after our children in recent years, uh, and before that, she was a teacher. So we're quite set up in that sense for um, for homeschooling. So she's been uh, running the uh, the homeschool element of things. I've been taking the role of head teacher, and um, <laughs> no one's been supervising sent to me. Yeah, and no one's really been sent to me yet, so that's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, like you say. Fortunately, I've been able to do most of my work online. But um, I think this whole thing of of days, when's the weekend, when's the weekday, you know, that kind of all things kind of blurring into one. Um, trying to keep some structure, but I, you know, I can't work as much as usual because yeah, yeah, me with, too, me with, too. yeah, with the messaging, you know, having to stay in, it's a big ask. For, it's a for, shame from a personal perspective, I realized, and I can see this now, we'll talk about this a little bit. There are a whole bunch of academic teams now across various universities and people I know that are jumping on the situation and contributing scientific knowledge to public debate. Um, and unfortunately, the situation I'm in, I can't do that. And the reason is that these 
people don't have kids <laughs> or have yeah. kids that are older. And yeah. basically they are working the whole day on research matters, trying to bring more knowledge into the public domain about the situation, be this uh, whether kids should go back to school, be this trying to measure the impact of the coronavirus on the labor market, be this on trying to get a sense of how many people are infected, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I literally am only able to do basic administrative tasks, a little bit of scientific research, but it's not. So I, I feel, I feel like there's an opportunity for me as a professional that, that I'm not able to participate in. And that's, that's a shame. Yeah. I think that's, it's the same really. I mean, um, like I say, I'm able to do some work, but it's also, I don't know. Um, I spend some of my time just thinking, yeah, I need to get on with this work, get some research out is there something I can do that's going to usefully contribute to kind of tackling um, some of the issues that we're facing? But I also find myself some of the time thinking, oh, this is just, I can't quite get my head around it. You know, I kind of almost like, don't know. Um, it's the strangest thing. It's like living in a movie. And I, I know lots of people are saying this. It's like living in a nightmare dystopian film. And I find sometimes I just spend some of the time just thinking I, should I just be carrying should we just be carrying on as normal here you know it's um there's so many things going on there are people you know literally hundreds of people dying every single day and not just in some far off place here you know down the road there's a hospital down the road for me there are people dying there and I you know of... that's that's a very interesting question I've been thinking about that and let me just sort of divert a little bit into sort of uh, academia and a little bit because I've been thinking about this from my knowledge perspective. Now, I, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, I've dabbled a little bit in the last couple of days, just sort of with the maths behind what's going on. Uh, but you and me, we're both economists. We know a lot of econometrics and we know a little bit about the, the counterfactual. And I've been kind of thinking a lot, you know. So obviously, there are a lot of people dying now. You can see this in Italy, Spain, the UK numbers are ramping up. There's questions about where we are on the curve and yada, yada, yada. So there's all sorts of uh, interesting basic statistics making it into the news now uh, where people opinionate uh, what's 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 happening and one thing that I've sort of I have, I have to say I've not been opinionating, opinionating about this at all in public this is the first time I'm doing this uh, but as you know what is the actual what what, what is the counterfactual here because um, around so I looked at the ONS statistics around 10,000 people die per week on average that's just you know 60 million people in, in the UK, yeah. people die. Uh, you know, there's an end of life. Uh, you do the numbers, it's 10,000 people per week. It goes up and down, it's seasonal. But the average over the last five, last five years for whatever, some particular week in March, which I checked out, was 10,200, right? And uh, this year's number was 10,300. It was like 100 more. So I can probably guess that's not statistically significant. The interesting thing is when we start getting some more up-to-date data for April, whether one can actually identify what is the actual impact of the coronavirus on mortality. Because, yes, a lot of people are saying, you know, you can see a lot of people are dying in hospitals. The question is, would these people have died anyway at home or in a care home? Uh, and, and, and that is something you can answer that question with data, but it's not quite out yet that day. It's a quite a lag. It's a lag of about three, four weeks. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, I mean, it's something we can maybe talk about later on as well, that actually part of this crisis is a data crisis, right? That we just don't have accurate numbers. And then, as you say, it takes a, uh, there's a lag of time. And there's this big discussion as to whether people are dying from coronavirus or whether they're dying with coronavirus. How many people, yeah, would have died anyway? How many people are dying at home and actually, you know, have 
the symptoms have these uh, have the disease, but it's not yet recorded, or when by the time it gets recorded, um, it's further down the line, and all the numbers. So trying to plot where you are on a curve, it's you know it's really very difficult, and um, this is something that the government are having to do, and this. The scientists are trying to um, time when to do certain things, but it's so difficult with this kind of moving target and where you're already kind of behind where you think you are. But one thing I was going to ask you, friends, I mean, um, just looking at the numbers, Germany um, seems to be doing better than other places. Do you have any um, insight as to why uh, uh, Germany seems to be implementing something better or, or doing something right? I'm not 100% sure whether I have any greater insight than, you know, the Financial Times or The Guardian who are reporting on this daily, really. And obviously, there's a lot of comparison now to the German case. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of looking at their, their trajectory and where they are on the curve. And it does seem like they have their curve under much better control than the UK, the US, Spain, Italy or France. Um, so there's obviously something they're doing that is different. Um, whether it is just you know, that they are doing more testing. I think to some extent, actually, they were just quicker. So, you know, I think the underlying mortality effect of this virus will probably be very similar across all the countries. It's just what well, you're seeing the statistics, you know, how much sample bias is there. You and me know, know these things kind of very well. Um, you know, if you're not measuring something, what is the stuff that you're not seeing? You know, how important yeah. is that? And I suspect that in the German case, uh, there's probably less of that. And however... I think they were also just a little bit faster. I mean, my wife is Greek, so I do also follow the Greek news quite a bit. Yeah. And that's not being brought up in the news a lot because obviously it's a smaller country, less people. But they've also had it, uh, have it uh, under control relatively well, very much like the German case. And in both cases, I think the countries just started, they shot slightly earlier, yeah. uh, probably two, two weeks earlier than the, uh, than, uh, the UK did. And that just, that, that extra two weeks translates into you not quite reaching that high on the curve and the yeah. thing is take two weeks off of this curve well we have to remember the y-axis on this curve which is mortality yeah. is measured exponentially yes so you know it's it's it, it makes a big difference these 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 extra these extra few days where countries took action earlier appear to make a big difference in how your curve actually looks like at the end and it just looks like that germany was a little bit faster in, in, in doing something you might argue at the time would have been quite draconian. And here, certainly, people were a little bit slower. Now, whether you can lay that, uh, whether you can go back in hindsight and say, okay, Boris Johnson should have done things differently, the chief scientific officer should have done things differently, you know, it's really hard. A couple of extra days they missed out, and you have thousands more deaths. I'm not sure whether you can put this in. Yeah, really. I think you're right. I mean, as I say, it's really difficult when you're um trying to time things and i think i think this may have been you know part of the problem is you know if you're trying to really precisely time things but and the, and the reality is you don't have the data right and so it's very difficult um to to get things timed correctly um and yeah i mean it's interesting what i find fascinating there's a few cases where um countries got their first cases on the same day and then have pursued different strategies so the classic is the usa and south korea both got their first case of coronavirus on the same day and they pursued very different strategies i mean trump was talking about oh it'll just disappear it'll be like a miracle and really playing it down whereas south korea were very aggressive in testing and then tracing everybody you know isolating anybody who's got the virus and then tracing all of their 
contacts and isolating them and they really um they really got a hold of it and so i mean obviously the numbers are changing all the time but it's it's something i think south korea had about only 200 deaths so far and yeah, in the same yeah. time span, it's, it's very low it's very the low. u.s are up to like ten thousand, right yeah yeah um and and just i mean uh, obviously there's huge differences between the countries right not least in in size but if you put that in terms of deaths per million in the population it's 32 per million in the US and only eight per million in South Korea. So even though there's all these differences, there's definitely seems to be, you know, looking back at least, you can see, well, this strategy of, of that they can carry out in South Korea because it's a smaller country and, and you know, technology-wise, I've been tracking people um, and not everybody can do that. But it definitely seems to, that policy, and as you say, like Greece as well, these kind of more aggressive lockdowns, uh, more restrictive certainly seems to have been um, making a difference. I'm pretty sure that once we get further into this and we have more data and we have more trajectories for different countries across the world, basically every single country in the world is now following some curve um, at the moment. And, you know, in a year's time, um, this data will be very informative for making better informed policy decisions in the future. You know, we can compare countries that acted quickly and what was their outcome to countries that didn't act quickly and their outcome. Uh, and I'm sure down the line for the next pandemic, whenever that may be, this data will prove very useful. But without having had this data beforehand, you know, everybody was kind of pretty much taking blind guesses. And um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's very interesting. I, I don't have much to say. It's, you know, you have to be careful before you start saying, okay, Germany is spending more money on its NHS and therefore we should do the same. And yes, there's a bit more capacity there. That's true. But I think to a large extent, these curves, these numbers will have been determined by literally the lockdown actions. Yeah, I think it's the timing, isn't it? And I mean, the other one that's very interesting, I think, to keep an eye on is, is the Norway and Sweden comparison because, you know, comparing the US and South Korea is quite tricky because of all these other differences. As we, you know, as we know, as, as an econometricians, you want to be able to compare like with like and control for these differences between things. But you think, you know, Norway and Sweden are fairly similar countries geographically, similar kind of populations, culturally similar. And Sweden's really interesting because they've, they, they, as, you know, as of now, they've not locked down at all, right? They're doing social distancing thing, whereas Norway's been pretty aggressive. And again, you're getting these diverging pathways in terms of uh, number of, of deaths so far, much higher in, in, in Sweden um, than yeah, I think it's, 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 again, it's, I'm, I'm, the data of this will be very, very interesting after the fact. Uh, and um, to people like you and me, we kind of work with this data quite a lot. You know, we try to identify counterfactuals from this. We have different strategies, different treatment effects, different kind of populations. Um, so I think it will be useful for policymakers. Obviously, it doesn't help people in the UK at this point in time. Um, I'm not sure what policymakers can do at this point other than to see where this whole thing is heading. Yeah, it's really difficult to think, you know, research-wise, like, right, what can we, what can we say? Because this is just, uh, you know, the level of this um, pandemic is just kind of unprecedented, certainly in our lifetimes. I know there have been, you know, big flu pandemics before, but not in the last kind of, uh, not since, well, there's big, I think, 1918, big flu pandemic then. I think there's been in various countries similar things um more recently but in our lifetimes in this country you know we don't know um what the all the impacts are going to be you know trying to then project from 
okay, uh, what can we tell about, I don't know, the impact of school closures? Um, well, we're having to extrapolate over a space that we just don't know, right? And there's so many things that are interconnected. I think it's going to be, um, you know, it's a really difficult job for policymakers. And it's, it's, I mean, it's really good, as you talked about at the beginning, the academics uh, and other kind of research professionals are kind of mobilizing, uh, certainly to try and get anything we can know uh, into, um, into policy thinking uh, at the highest levels of government. So that's, um, that's a good thing. I guess, as, as you say, we're not <coughs> epidemiologists. Uh, we can kind of think about the, the numbers and the counterfactuals and crunch the data. But as economists, we should probably talk a little bit about um, the economy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, the impacts that these big, you know, yeah. massive shutdowns are going to have um, on the economy. I mean, some of the numbers are quite incredible. I know, again, this is not really, we are economists, but um, the area of kind of macro economy um you know the whole country gdp and this sort of thing again that's not that's not really our area um in fact we might be able to say more about epidemiology which um <laughs> probably uh, but but thinking about it, just the numbers are, are are quite crazy um the universal credit uptake i was just looking before and you know in the last fortnight of march almost a million people uh, put in new claims for universal credit which is the which is the kind of one-stop shop for all benefits, um, job seekers allowance and um, housing benefit and child tax credits and all that kind of roll into this one benefit now, universal credit. In a normal fortnight, you'd get maybe 100,000 uh, claimants apparently. But yeah, yeah, last two weeks of March, there's that, you know, 10 times that. It's just incredible. Um, it's some crazy numbers. It's, it's, it's amazing how quickly life has changed and shut down. If you look at the American numbers, 10 million extra unemployed people in the space of two weeks, you know, the spike on the chart is just enormous. Uh, there's never been a situation where something like this has happened so quickly. And I think until a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago, or so people were kind of thinking, well, you know, we're going to come out of this maybe that quickly as well so you know it shoots up we wait a couple of weeks we go you know on sleep mode what people were talking about yeah and then the whole thing will shoot down again and we all continue but i i think people are realizing now that that doesn't that that's not going to happen there's some evidence from natural disasters in, in the literature so this is kind of more the kind of stuff that you and me are doing where people have looked at things like earthquakes for example what's the yeah. of earthquakes on labor markets uh, and how does and 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 these are very quite literally <laughs> instantaneous shocks to yeah. to people's lives. You know, houses collapsing, uh, uh, workplaces literally collapsing, uh, and um, and people have looked at you know how long does it take an economy and the labour market to to recover from that? And it takes a while. It, you know, it's not it's not quick, right? It takes yeah. uh, quite a few quarters. Okay, it doesn't take decades, but um, you know there are severe labor market shocks uh these are demographically distributed of course younger people tend to be more severely affected uh and it takes you know an earthquake or take it takes a year or more to recover from from an earthquake right so to a large extent this is an earthquake it's quite yeah. a massive earthquake yeah right and um so i think we can safely forecast as labor economists that the effects on the labor markets are going to be you know very noticeable in the data that we look at for quite a while and i would say at least four six to eight quarters uh so that's two years plus right and there'll be interesting questions about how will the unemployment rate uh, uh decrease over time so there's no way that it will, it will just drop down it's going to gradually decrease over time 
how long will that take? What will happen to uh, small firms, small and medium enterprises? What will happen to certain industries? You and me, we work in education, and we'll talk about this a little later about the impact from schools. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, so I think I think to a large extent, there's a. <laughs> My my academic mind was actually thinking, ooh, there's going to be lots of interesting data coming out soon. And then my next thought was, oh gosh, I hope they measure the data. I hope people are still going out and collecting the labor force survey. Yeah, <laughs> that, well, they, yeah, that's, they might that's... actually stop doing that. And then we don't know. That would be even that would be quite bad. Um, so it kind of perversely, sort of my academic mind has been quite clinical about this and hoping, you know, hopefully we can learn something from this. But it will take quite a while before people like you and me uh, get our hands on that thing. Yeah, and I think also you know you think, oh, here's a you know, we're always looking for um, shocks, right? not in a, like that sounds wrong, but you know, often when there's a shock in the labor market uh, or a shock to supply of something or a shock to schooling, that is something that as empirical economists, you know, we look to exploit these kind of natural experiments that get generated by shocks. And so even things like natural disasters, which obviously no one is, is ever happy about, ex post when you look at the data, you can see okay so things like hurricane katrina there's there's lots of literature looking at okay well what happened to those kids who had to move school and they suddenly went often from kind of poor schools poor neighborhoods and were kind of um parachuted into schools in better off neighborhoods and, and better schools mm. and okay what's the impact but in this situation you think this is such a major shock to everything it's kind of you know it affects so many things all at the same time. It's going to be something that is just, we'll see it in the data and we're just going to, it's going to be quite a, a difficult task um, for data science and, and for econometrics and other empirical methods, methodologists to unpick what the actual effects are uh, because. Yeah, know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a clean shock, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the most unclean shock, I suppose, of all. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 I think it's difficult. I mean, let's see, let's wait and see what happens. It's, I think scientifically there's going to be a vast amount of coronavirus papers from all the disciplines entering the academic market soon uh, and hopefully informing future policies to some extent. It's interesting that, of course, this is all we're talking about stuff in the future. If we just take it back to the yeah. current kind of political and policy environment, you know, it's, it's, I kind of feel a little bit for, some of the key policy makers, and dare I say Boris Johnson to some extent, uh, that they have to make very difficult decisions in very uncertain times without a lot of data to back them up, without a lot of previous scientific uh, history on this. Um, I mean, I think what the Chancellor and what lots of countries are doing, where they're literally just piling money into the labor market or trying to do it anyway, yeah. is the right thing. Um, I think, you know, you're almost getting to a situation where too much money actually is starting to harm the credibility of, of all these promises. This, um, is, uh, this is a thing. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd, had you ever heard the word furlough before? About, I have. Like, yes, I have. I've three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. No, the Americans use it a lot. <laughs> right. So, yeah, but yeah. it's one of those things, you know, and, and it's unprecedented times. But the, the response, as you say, from policymakers has actually been you know, unprecedented itself, right? So Amazingly the, fast. I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting that I was reading somewhere that uh, the health secretary has kind of just blanket waived all of the NHS debt to something of 13 billion pounds and that, you know, yeah. this would take years of discussion for the budget uh, to, to materialize and he in the stroke 
where pen is kind of all gone. So it's it's very interesting. I mean, there's an interesting macroeconomic side effects. How, you know, how, how our future budget is going to cope with this. I, I would leave that to to macroeconomists to discuss rather than uh, voice my opinion here. But I must say, at least from a labor market perspective. Uh, the policies were quick and fast and quite serious. And I think that's probably the best they could have done. Yeah. I mean, I think like you say, trying to essentially put the whole economy on standby, right? So that we don't have mass layoffs um, and the kind of you know increases in unemployment that, well, we've certainly seen in the US, um, being able to keep people in post, but just on effectively on pause for, for a few weeks or months. I mean, it's a and it's like a blank check, right? Because we don't we don't know how long it's going to last for. We don't know how many people are going to take up. You know, how many firms are are going to furlough staff? Um, so yeah, the the level of government support and investment and intervention in the economy is quite um, unprecedented. But it it makes sense, right? We need to keep people uh, in in jobs so that once we get through the virus you know once we're allowed to go back to work people can just in theory quite quickly click back into uh into work uh ideally and then start to get you know economic activity back up rather than having loads of people having to that you know you think of the friction and the costs of having to try and match people to jobs all the recruitment all the kind of in, th- in theory yes yeah you're 100 percent right i mean i was contemplating this the other day if you've ever sat on the recruitment panel uh, oh. and you get all these you know you, yeah. get, you have one job out there and 200 people apply and you just have a nightmare going through 200 cvs because everybody needs an equal chance and it's just take consume so much time well now if you post a job after the crisis you might get two thousand or twenty thousand now because that would be a disaster from an hr perspective to deal with but i must say um I think, yes, to a large extent, the kind of the sleep mode and then everybody return back to normal. It's an interesting idea. I don't think it will happen uh, like that. I think, you know, you can see it with industries. Um, these kind of things change behaviors. So, you know, a lot of our economy is based on, on our behavioral pattern. Okay. Yeah. Uh, services. I mean, we just have to look at the restaurant industry, you know, who's ordering takeout these days. So that's kind of all going on there. And, and people won't revert back to this very quickly after the crisis in fact people will realize oh wait you know hang on a minute i can cook my own food i can live without uh, the chinese takeaway well, yeah i mean that's interesting <laughs> so, this is this is a question so part part of me though thinks as soon as i can we are going out for dinner you know we are going to a restaurant we are not having to cook ourselves again okay i'm not having pasta and pesto again right uh we are going to go out and i think part of me thinks you know it's going to be really interesting to see is there that straight bounce back of right i want to go I want to take the kids swimming. I want to go to the cinema. I want to go to the theater, you know, a massive pile in to services again, which is, you know, 80% of our economy. Will we see that? Or will it be, as you say, people thinking, you know what, I, I don't want to risk, you know, I, I, I'm not yet. I, how long will it be before people say, actually, I, I do want to go to a restaurant. I do want to go. Even if the controls were relaxed like the way they came in, I instantaneous, I think there's going to be a, quite a lag in terms of how people adjust their behavior back to normal and i think i don't think they will i don't think it will go back to normal and i think spending patterns will change and that will have an effect on employment and industries and, and how our economy is shaped however uh, i also don't think that the controls will disappear instantaneously i think it's going to be very difficult getting out of this in terms of releasing the controls and then people talk about tightening them tight, tightening them again as we go through the next phase the next curve or whatever 
So I think there's actually quite a problem here. And because the, the releasing of these controls, as things get better, will be quite long and delayed, I think there's no way that our behavioral patterns within the economy will resort back to its original. I mean, look at the banks. The banks are still doing a pretty good job in terms of keeping you know, our, our monetary system going. But suddenly they're realizing, hang on, I mean, they've already realized this beforehand, but now they're really sure we don't need high street branches anymore, right? You know, things can obviously still continue without going to your local bank and giving them 100 quid or whatever to put in your account. Uh, Things are still working. So, you know, there's going to be changes in industries where big firms that are surviving will be looking at themselves thinking, you know, actually can we use this kind of as a this kind of creative destruction to make ourselves more efficient and change things so i suspect we're in for some very interesting times i think it's similar you know with this returning to services returning to restaurants and bars and restaurants and pubs um whether the same thing happens with work patterns right so at the moment so many things have been uh shifted online so many uh, things that you would normally do in the office, the meetings and, and what have you. And, you know, part of me thinks, okay, so maybe some of this will remain in the future. So um, hopefully we'll still be able to record policy matters in the studio. But, um, you know, when people find new ways of working, I was doing some interviewing last week and uh, I would have normally have gone into London for this. Um, and people were coming from all around the country for these interviews, but actually everything was done. Uh, online via video conferencing and uh, it was a thought you know that all worked pretty well Um, and then the question is you know what so for future is this what people are going to do because you know if you're bringing people down from the northeast or from Scotland and normally they'll be coming to London for you know for a meeting for an interview or whatever it is if you can do it all online now is that what people are going to do I mean there's definite kind of potential innovations there but at, at the same time I think I want this has made me all the more want to get in face-to-face in the room where people will be able to work side by side, you know, like normal, because that, you know, that, that being in the room with somebody, being able to look at the same screen uh, side by side, being able to work together, being able to talk, being able to pop out, talk to someone in the office down the hall rather than having to kind of video call them somehow. I think for me, it's, I feel like there's going to be again, this, this pushback uh, of wanting to get back to, you know, appreciating the human contact. Um, you know, there's a literature on this anyway. I mean, firms have been, first of all, Skype and online meetings have been around since the early 2000s and, you know, blended learning, e-learning and, you know, the stuff, the education industry that we work on. I mean, there's kind of a reason why it never really took off and universities are still around and they still have buildings. Uh, it's because there's something, there's something physical about learning, yeah. even, if, even if it's very theoretical. Um, uh, but if you look at companies, you look like WeWork or some of these kind of uh, hot desk here that was quite popular in the in kind of some in the noughties and, and uh, in the last 10 years, where companies said, okay, we can reduce our physical footprint and just make everybody dance around like a game of musical chairs. Uh, and uh, they work from home one day per week and therefore we have less capital costs and yada, yada, yada. None of that really panned out and worked very well. And quite a few companies have gone back to just these traditional methods where people We've got some open plan spaces. Then you've got some offices where people can, you know, have their own privacy. And uh, but what they've kind of realised, and the literature has kind of backed this up, is that uh, physical contact, even in services where your, you know, like banks or finance firms, is really really important and also key to to workers' morale. So, and I've noticed this myself. You know, we have a load of Skype meetings, Zoom meetings, whatever it is now, Teams meetings. 
and they kind of work, but it's not the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm really thankful that in some of the meetings we switch the video off uh, so I can do some push-ups or something <laughs> while people are going, blah, 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 right? <laughs> so I am doing that. But when I have to have the video on and I just think, oh, gosh, and, and people... Uh, there seem to be more meetings than normally now. Uh, so it's very easy to go click, 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 arrange a meeting. And we're having kind of too many meetings and it's kind of eating into my productivity. And especially now, because actually there's an opportunity cost. Every hour I work means my wife can't work from now. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually really, really quite complicated. So I'm not a massive fan of how suddenly technology has invaded my work life. And I suspect this will not be the status quo going forward even after the crisis. Uh, people will go back to the kind of normal working rhythms because it kind of just works you know if people hadn't done it before they did it because it worked before. Yeah. Uh, but i think the more serious concerns will be what industries will survive and uh, uh and and how will they change shape as, as we go forward so i think i mean for example education i mean let's talk about education a little bit that's where we work this yeah you know, schools are closed right that's that's an issue we're education economists um we we tend to make a big deal about schools and education how important it is to ourselves to productivity to you know the rest of the economy yeah. to, to everybody so you know uh it's um my own university all universities are currently extremely worried about uh, the finances for next year and where the students will come from um what are your i guess there's, there's there's different forces pushing different ways so you think on the one hand uh, we know there's a literature on uh, the dangers of graduating in a, a recession uh, and, and not just from university, but from school. So entering the labor market during an economic downturn um, has scarring effects. Right. So actually, Paul Gregg, who you will remember uh, we had in uh, one of the early seasons of uh, Policy Matters talking about the labor market. And he's got work um, showing how people who were entering the labor market in the recession in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, they're still, or they still had an impact visible in their wages compared to people who entered you know, before the recession, you know, 20 years later, you know, 20 years after they've started in the labor market. So there's this issue of joining the labor market at a time of economic downturn, which obviously we are, you know, we're already surely in a recession. We're going to be in a recession for a while. There's going to be you know, economic difficulty. So that kind of pushes people to think, well, you know, people who may not have gone to university might think, you know what? I'll go to university because it's a good place to be. It's not a good time to enter the labor market. Or people at university thinking, you know what, I'm going to stay on. Postgraduate recruitment is going to be a really interesting one because this may push people to stay, you know, I'm going to stay an extra year. Let's, let's see what that, so, so education is generally a counter-cyclical industry. It's true. So, yeah. you know, we might want to think, okay, yay, the good times are coming. Uh, if the economy does badly, everybody's going to run back to university and continue educating themselves and, you know, We'll all be rich. Uh, our finance planners, uh, planners are not of that opinion. Uh, we suspect there's going to be a big crash in foreign demand as, as kind of... Well, that's the kind of... That's yeah. the thing. I, I was thinking about domestic... Uh, but I mean, students, even, but even, even, going back to, even going back to d domestic demand, I mean, there is a very interesting question, what will happen? Um, I mean, anecdotally, I'm hearing that students may be delaying the entry in September because they are worried about this idea of only online teaching. They prefer the kind of physical teaching aspect. So then we're going to take a gap here. But I mean, that's an interesting question. We've kind of looked at this a little bit in our own research. You know, what happens when, so for example, the school leaving ages changes yes. when that happens, you know, when, when you're holding a kind of 
um, a, a cohort in school for an extra year, well, what happens is there will be a missing cohort on the labor market, right? So yep. you're going to get one year where there's kind of no fresh supply of young, fresh kids coming onto the labor market to do whatever, you know, basic tasks. And then you're going to have another year, the next year, when suddenly all these people stream onto the labor market, right? Whereas previously, they would have been split over two years. So you get this kind of influx of extra uh, workers. And, you know, there's an interesting question here, whether we're entering something similar, that people put the educational decisions on hold, and then down the line, so we're talking, you know, one or two years down the line, actually, the labor market for young people will be quite different than it is now. It's going to be really interesting because there was already an issue with um, graduate underemployment in in the UK. So um, I've been looking at at this a little bit, um, but already you had a situation where graduates were coming out of uh, university into the labour market, and a lot of people. I think I've got I've got a number somewhere um, that the proportion of students who are doing a job or graduates who are doing a job that doesn't require uh, a degree is quite high for the UK. Uh, where are we? So yeah, no, no, so, I, I, I believe you. You believe me? Yeah, uh, I've got. Uh, I'll I'll come up with a number somehow. But you know, we already have have a situation where graduates in the UK are underemployed, yeah. and this has a this has the same kind of scarring effect, right, on people's wages because you go into a graduate job, and if you can get the graduate job. Um, that's great, but you might be in, in a job that isn't really a graduate job and you start on those wages. You've then got to at some point try and transfer into a graduate role. And even if you get into a graduate role uh, during a, a, a recession, then you're going to have lower wages to start with and then it tends to just grow on a path, right? So as you get more so experience... So it's, it's for life, unfortunately, right? I mean, there's quite, So there's quite a bit of evidence. I mean, also, you know, there was evidence back from the Vietnam War uh, that showed very clearly people who were unfortunately randomly allocated into going to the Vietnam War and then came back and continued their normal educational path and went onto the labor market had scarring issues that affected them basically forever. Their income trajectories were lower. They were just missing that little bit. But if you're missing a little bit every year, obviously over yeah, time... And it builds up. It builds up and, and it's, it's a kind of, you know, it's a real cohort effect. An entire generation of people were affected simply by the fact that they were born in the wrong time period yeah. and got hit by this kind of quite significant and it makes sense you know you think that if you're a, an employer and you hire someone and here's the wage this is the kind of market wage for graduates at this point and then as they progress you increment their wages each year with experience but at no point does someone say ah oh, hold on you graduated in that year ah that was a recession so really we should bump your wages up by 10 percent because you missed out you know no one ever does that obviously they just kind of work you work and your your wages rise on a curve uh so it's it's going to be interesting as i say the uk already in a kind of position where we have a lot of people going to university you know pretty much 50 percent of of 18 year olds going to higher education and i found my number it's one third so one third of graduates already in the uk are working in a job that doesn't require a degree Mm. so i guess for, for higher education where we work there's a question of okay well what can what can policy do i think one thing i mean we have um in our work contributed to helping with this a little bit in terms of putting out there the information on you know what are the earnings returns for different degrees and for people yeah. with different prior attainments and what's clear from that work is that actually 
you know, the expansion of higher education, some of the expansion, some of the people who've been going into university are from the kind of lower prior attainment, right? So we moved down the, the ability distribution and that has led to people coming out with uh, degrees that are not repaying them, right? These are people probably who are not getting into graduate jobs and are then earning less in some cases than and they would have. You may very well see more of this evidence. So if, you, if you're saying that, you know, education is counter-cyclical, more people are going to pile into university now, do degrees next year to kind of avoid the whatever recession happens in the labor market, um, you might very well, three, four years down the line, so this is kind of the long-run effects of this, yeah. uh, see that you have a large amount of people graduating with degrees that may not actually have big initial returns, but because there's now even an excess of those people with those types of degrees, yeah. they might be even lower. So you could see some very significant, to you and me, interesting, unfortunately for the people who are affected, perhaps not so interesting, effects uh, on individuals going, you know, at least half a decade into the future. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of long-run effects. And um, I guess there's also um, the problem that these inequalities and these effects tend to be non-randomly distributed. So we already have problems with kind of getting into um, the, the, the elite universities. There's already a kind of inequality in who manages to get in there. And now just thinking about the effect of, not having the cohort of A-levels, right? So all the students who don't get to take A-levels this year and their grades are oh, going to be I th- I predicted. Think really, yeah, I think that's really, that's really tough because the prediction, I mean, I've had a look at a couple of the statements that they released and they're going to try and basically align their app. So what they're going to do is take the whole cohort of student population of A-level kids, whatever it is, 300,000, something like this. I'm not quite yeah. sure. I'm guessing here. Uh, and um, and just kind of predict grades for them. And they're going to obviously even use statistics to make sure that the average of this year looks pretty similar to the average of last year. So the averages will look exactly right, right? The problem is that, you know, that doesn't mean that individuals will get their, let's yeah. say, correct score. So you can have a global average that's absolutely spot on, but you can have so much individual variation within that uh, that actually individuals are going to be quite penalized and I, I have a I think predicting as somebody who does a lot of statistical modeling and regression analysis in fact just yesterday I was running some regressions and I looked at some predicted values and and I realized that the predicted values were completely off so the average looked fine right <laughs> but the model itself was completely you know not very good uh, and and I was kind of thinking well if you do something poorly for for students um, it's the problem is well i don't know how to do it better but unfortunately there's a lot of injustice uh, to me there seems to be quite a sense of injustice there yeah Uh, i mean i think already we know from research that about i think it's about 80 percent of predicted grades are wrong right yeah (laughs) um, yeah. well and so it's like a bad you know bad at predicting in the first place and actually and they're wrong in a kind of uneven way so you know kids from better off backgrounds tend to be over predicted kids from poorer backgrounds tend to be under predicted and yeah. then this plays into, okay, well, who applies to what university and then who, you know, a lot of offers yeah, are made yeah, on the basis of predictions. So it's, And they wanted to use the school rank as well to, to, to make, uh, so, you know, that further really accentuates this problem of, of equality, really, because, you know, a lot of schools that are not that well performing tend to be in clusters, local clusters where there's usually more deprivation. So, you know, you're just hammering it down there. So I, I must say, 
I'm really not sure about that methodology, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, hopefully there will be um, yeah, some way in which to try and address the existing inequalities um, because it's, it's, you know, things are going to get more difficult. I mean, we're very interested in, in, in widening participation, making sure that those people who have the ability, whatever their background, to go to university um, are able to do so. Uh, and so it's going to become even more important to make sure that uh, those inequalities are addressed. I think um, we've had quite a lot of interesting areas to talk about and quite a lot of um, depressing um, conclusions uh, uh, or possibilities, at least. I think we should try and end with uh, some positives, uh, bring it back to, to give us some hope. I mean, uh, we talked about the, the time uh, with, with the family uh, that people are, are, are having. Uh, that's positive. Any other positive friends that you can uh, leave us with? Uh, well, I'm still getting paid. That's pretty, that's pretty positive. That's but positive <laughs> on the micro level. Um, <laughs> for you at the individual level, that's good. Yeah. Uh, um, um, I positives. You know, I, I um, I'm trying to think of the positives kind of from an academic. I mean, from an academic perspective, yes. You know, there's lots of interesting data to do, right? I'm trying to think of the positives for society. Um, you know, it's a change. Uh, I think a lot of people will be probably more negatively affected than positively at first um, in terms of how this affects their livelihood, how this affects their their mental well-being. I mean, we haven't really talked about that yet, but, you know, being locked up. And I know yeah. for myself, I mean, we just moved in the summer. We have a pretty nice place. We have a garden. Uh, I can stay at home. But having lived in a nine-meter square flat previously in London, yeah. where my toilet was shared with somebody else outside in the corridor, I can tell you that I would not enjoy uh, yeah. spending 12 weeks uh, in that place. Yeah, and that but, would have very serious impact on my <laughs> mental well-being. Yeah, I mean, I think this is it. It's interesting that this crisis kind of highlighted inequalities that already already exist but also then just emphasize you know created new ones the people who like ourselves we're fortunate to be able to work at work at home that's the kind of the inconvenience as we've talked about and it's gen you know it's a, a real inconvenience to some extent um but it's you know we've still got jobs we're still getting paid we're still able to do our job maybe not as productively but we can still do it but there's a lot of people young people people on low wage who their job just you cannot do right um and so i mean one that that's kind of new inequalities and access to space as well you know to be able to go out in the garden a lot of people as you say in london if you're living in a flat you know not having access to space there's these new kind of inequalities that are dividing but i think there's also um things that are are bringing people together there's a kind of evaluation of jobs you know people delivery drivers people you know collecting uh, the bins and this sort of thing and people working in shops that previously haven't been maybe valued so much by society. I think the whole of society is beginning to see, you know, we shouldn't assign value to people on the basis of what their earnings are um, because these jobs keep the economy, you know, we've known it for a long time, but I think some people are starting to realize that, you know, we should really not, and particularly you think about, I don't know, um, rules for work permits and what have you and whether there's an earnings threshold you think that there are a lot of people doing jobs that aren't well paid but they are keeping the country running you know there's heroes obviously in the nhs and in frontline services but there are heroes in in the shop on a corner that is you know every day seeing people putting their lives at risk um so that's one that's one positive at least uh, i would take uh, that i think people are starting and hopefully people in policy makers um who not all but you know some in the past certainly haven't i think valued uh some of these roles um and the other the other positive 
is we we are not hearing anything about Brexit these days, which is, uh, you know, having had three years or so of of barely anything else and having to really try hard not to talk about it on the on the on the program. Um, yeah. We we are you know we definitely don't have to talk about that at least not for now anyway. So that's that is a positive I think for for everyone's uh, that well. that is a definite positive. Yes, no, but I would just echo what you just said. You're absolutely right. I mean, the delivery van driver is suddenly my hero. Uh, up until yeah. up, up until a couple of weeks ago, I, I I can't say I was a fan of him. One of them hit my car the other day. Uh, not a happy bunny. But now, you know, <laughs> without them, I think we would all in the country have a massive problem uh, without these kind of people. So, you know, uh, I think hopefully uh, once some of this has settled, there can be a just reward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, if you think, as I say, a few weeks, even a few months ago, you know, think back to December, the election and in January when we officially left the EU, you know, to think that we have been brought together as a country you know in the worst possible circumstances but that is something that we can hopefully build on that kind of cohesion and that sense of coming back together in a way uh, that I don't think has really been felt um, probably since the Olympics you know since 2012 when there's that real sense of nationhood and togetherness as a people and I think you know yeah. for now that is is a positive we can take and, and, and hold on to so that's at least some small um, comforts in, in what's a pretty tricky situation. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Boscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back soon with more.